Linda Hartka is the embodiment of love. She leads with her spirit in all of her interactions. She has an innate ability to hold space and create safety. She believes that everything that wants to be seen, wants to be heard, can be healed, can evolve, all through loving presence. And before we begin, a portion of this episode makes mention of sexual abuse, rape, and trauma, but in broad, not graphic terms. But because of this may not be suitable for all audiences. And I hope though, through this conversation, you can get a sense of the love that Linda emanates. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Liz Severin, and on this podcast, we engage in conversation and learn from Hoffman graduates. We'll dive deep into their journeys of self-discovery and explore how the process transformed their internal and external worlds. They share how their spirit and light now burn brighter in all directions of their lives. Their love's everyday radius. Well, hi, Linda. Hi, Liz. I'm so excited to have you on today as a beloved coworker. And I just remember first time I ever met you, you were the embodiment of love. And so I'm so happy to have you on today and get to experience that with you. Oh, <laughs> I, I wonder if my partner would agree. <laughs> I'm sure you are many things. I know that you mother and grandmother are definitely at the top of your list. And you've been a Hoffman teacher for how t- teacher and coach for how long now? Well, I started my training in 98, so that's like 24 years with the Institute. But, um, but I'm actually, I actually officially retired in December of, of uh, 22. So just, you know, a couple months ago, but, um, I'm not sure we've accepted that yet. You know, we're, we're, we're not letting that happen quite yet, but yes. <laughs> I'm a guest teacher, so I, I still keep my toe in the water. <laughs> it was not an easy decision, but I am ancient. And so when you also have a, you've been, I know you've been very active in this world of healing and tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah. Well, so it's, it's a long life at this point, right? I'm, I'm 75. So been a lot, a lot, a lot of years, but if I go way back to the very beginning, you know, I sort of grew up in the sixties in the consciousness revolution. So that launched me into really being fascinated by human consciousness and healing. And I started out kind of hard to believe at this point, as a doula. It wasn't even called a doula back then, but but I attended a lot of births and I had a lot of children in the meantime, right? That was one of the side effects of being a doula <laughs> was having children and I had five kids. And I trained as a Waldorf teacher and had a little nursery school for a while, but I really found my love with transpersonal psychology and psychosynthesis and had a private practice for many, many years. And then I encountered the process. And that was the love of my life. I think when I did the process, despite the fact that I had done so much 
work. As a therapist, I went to every workshop and read every book and was fascinated by transformation. And all of my clients were like teachers, you know, that everybody was so fascinating to work with. But I never really could move past my self-loathing, no matter what I did. And the process just came at the perfect time. And I walked out of that week my life changed and I wanted that for everybody. So that's why my private practice limped along for a while, but I was traveling so much I couldn't really sustain it. And I went fully into being a Hoffman teacher and coach and a program designer. I worked with youth at risk, now called Unlocking Futures actually, and just had a really full, full, full career with the Institute. I loved it. I loved it. It was my community. So now I'm back in private practice. <laughs> yeah, well, and when did you take the process? I think it was 96. Pretty sure it was 96. The teacher training started in 98. So that was back in the day when it was still eight days instead of seven. I took it in Rhode Island at a wonderful site on the ocean, which is no longer a site. <laughs> well, and how did you hear about the process? Because I mean, I, I didn't take, you know, I took it several years ago, but even when I was looking for these things, I still felt like I had found this secret. I just, I hadn't heard of anyone that had done Hoffman. So it always amazes me to hear about people that have done it, you know, 20 something years ago. So how did it first come into your awareness? Some people may know Sharon Kennedy. She's another teacher. And Sharon and I were at that point in time, we were at the Psychosynthesis Institute in New York. She was a year ahead of me and we were getting certified in psychosynthesis, which is, um, it's similar to internal family systems, which is so popular now. We were in a peer supervision group together and there was a, a John Bradshaw event, they called them. <laughs> For people that never saw John Bradshaw, he was kind of almost like a television evangelist for transpersonal psychology. He would bring hundreds of people into a room and do this deep inner child work. And you'd have a room full of people weeping and crying. And, and they wanted uh, therapists to volunteer in case there were any people that needed assistance. And so Sharon and I volunteered. We were very curious to see John Bradshaw. <laughs> and Barbara and Connie Comstock were there. And Barbara still teaches. Connie was my teacher and she retired some years ago. But they had been with Bob pretty much since the very beginning. And they were out there we had an East Coast coordinator at that point in time, and they were out there at this event, and we met them, and they told us about the process. Sharon went, and at the time, I thought, oh, I can't possibly afford this. I was going through a divorce, and I can't possibly afford this, so, so I didn't go. Sharon went, and then some two years later, we were still in peer supervision, and she made the comment, I'll never forget it, she said, there's never been a day since the process, that I haven't loved myself. And I thought, oh, whoa, I can't even imagine what that is like. And I was in a new relationship, and he paid my tuition. And the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> and taking us back to 
Rhode Island, back to your process, what what do you think it was about the process that allowed you to unlock or look into this as you were as you were mentioning this the self-loathing that you were curious about? But what do you think in the process was it for you? First of all, I think that the process is just a brilliant design. It's right. And and I've heard this from students again and again, like, gee, I wish we were going to fill in the blank. And that would be the very next thing that was going to happen. You know, there's there's a, a flow in the process that is so magical and, and just perfect. So it was the whole thing. But one of the things that I I think was very powerful for me that, frankly, I would have never gone to the process if I had known that we were going to have to do cathartic work. I would have not gone. It was there in the print, but I didn't see it. Even as a therapist, I had encouraged people to do cathartic work, but I'd never done it myself. It was so dangerous in my young family. I had a very difficult mom, very wounded mother, and it was dangerous to feel any anger whatsoever, let alone express it. Oh my God, that would have been (laughs) really dangerous. And so I was terrified of allowing myself to express the rage that I had been bottling up all my life. And I remember when I finally let go into that and just released all this anger that I'd been carrying for, I was 47 already, that I'd been carrying all my life. And after that, when we finished the cathartic work on mother, in those days we had one day for mother and one day for father. (laughs) And when I finished the work, There was so much energy and vitality and joy in me. It was like I I couldn't believe how much energy I had used up bottling and holding down these feelings. You know, and here I was with all this energy. I mean, my body was tired, but I had so much energy and vitality and joy and freedom. And I was felt so celebratory. And then all of that beautiful energy that was released was now turned toward compassion and love. And it was amazing. It was perfect. And just, you know, recognizing that everything that is arises within my own consciousness, right? Within the sensations of my body, within the emotions of my emotional self, my thoughts, my beliefs, my spirit, my sense of my own awareness, my own spirit, my own presence, all going on inside of me. And I love that. I love that. I love my life. It was a moment of really recognizing my own organism and my own being and how much joy and aliveness and just everything <laughs> is in that. And all that self-loathing just kind of melted away. It, it was like, whoa, all that stuff is just learned. It's all learned. It's not who I am. And so I, I could separate from it and see it and then recognize how in a funny way that all of those patterns and and all of that self-loathing and all of that self-monitoring had been like a distorted form of loving myself by keeping myself small and safe, right? That was well outgrown, well, 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 long outgrown, and that it was no longer about safety. It was about expression and savoring, being alive and all of that. So it was a huge, huge change that took place. I was just ripe for it. It was perfect, perfect timing. It was beautiful. 
Well, I'm curious. I, I love the honesty. You had been telling others to explore cathartic work and just hadn't explored it for yourself. Over the years, what have you found is helpful in enrolling students in cathartic expression work? That's a good question. I think the most powerful awareness that I've come to in watching students through the years, and I, I will often say this when I'm teaching, is that students are really afraid to dishonor their parents, right? I mean, there are many things, but that one thing, I, I will often ask that question, like, you know, how many of you have this belief that you should honor your mother and father? And I really can see how keeping all that negativity, all that learned behavior, all those adaptive strategies, all of that stuff that we adopt from our parents doesn't honor them at all. In fact, it dishonors them. And if they could do anything, that we wouldn't continue to keep their negative legacy alive. You know, what honors our parents is to is to live our lives with love and expression and fullness and joy. That's what honors our parents. And I'm a mom, right? I have five kids. And I can see patterns that I have actually moved beyond, that I've transformed. And please don't ever imagine that I've transformed them all. But <laughs> but, but some of those patterns that I've that I've really cleaned up are still alive in my kids. And that's heartbreaking. And I would do anything and did, you know, every one of them went to the process. <laughs> I would do anything to see them not have to carry the weight of those things that I struggled with for so many decades. I was young when I had my first child, I was only 23. So, you know, my oldest child <laughs> is burdened with a lot of my insecurity. And all of them, I watched change when they went through the process. You know, none of us are perfect, of course, but huge change, some more than others, but every one of them shed a lot of stuff <laughs> when they did the process. So, so yeah, so I think that's, you know, we don't want to keep that stuff alive. Why keep that stuff alive? You have to get it out. And even if you can find some understanding and even some forgiveness on an intellectual level, it's kind of like frosting over garbage, really, <laughs> because underneath it is still all this hurt and anger and a, a child that needs somebody to advocate for them and actually see them and validate, yeah, that was really hard. That was really hard, and you didn't deserve that. And all of those messages that you're unworthy or that you have to be this way or that way in order to connect and belong, you know, that was all adapting to your environment. And you can let that go now. And your parents were wounded too, in the same way you were, and they did the best they could. You know, it's like you can come back around with a much deeper understanding and forgiveness because we're all in this boat together. Without pretending that it didn't happen, without saying, oh, well, I understand it, so therefore it doesn't hurt anymore. Understanding doesn't make the hurt go away. You have to allow that child to have a voice and tell their story and get seen and heard by yourself. So in this beautifully safe and benevolent environment. Thank you for that, Linda. Well, and I'm curious, you started off as a doula. I think that is so fascinating. Was it just the, what drew you to, to, to that? Well, 
It's interesting. I never thought I wanted to have children, probably because my own childhood was so fraught and painful and difficult. And I didn't think that I would be able to be a good mom. But, you know, at my age, I got married in 1968. You'd get married and have children. That's what you do. In my generation, that's what you do, right? So I got pregnant. And of course, that was when people were first starting to bring in this whole era of natural childbirth. Before that, it was a nightmare in the hospitals with birth. And I so loved the experience of giving birth. It was, yes, of course, it was painful. But I remember when my daughter was born and they handed her to me and I had this I would call it a mystical experience, really. I had this experience of energy, of a lance of energy, just come right in through the crown of my head and wham into my heart. And my heart just blew open with love for this little baby. Oh my gosh, it was, it was truly an astonishing experience. I just fell in love with the whole process of birth, of bringing this being in and and you know who is this being and who will she become and you know how will she unfold and i just loved that and i really wanted to support other people to be fully present for their births and so there was an organization international childbirth education association and they wanted to train a lay person because they found that the medical people were kind of hovering around the machines and not paying much attention to the <laughs> to the woman giving birth. And so I was a pilot program for them to train a layperson. And this was in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So there was a lot of freedom for me to go into even cesarean sections and hospital births with women who had no understanding of what was happening, completely clueless about what was happening in their bodies and home births, the whole range. Every time, every time, it was like the spiritual world just filled the room with the birth. It was like magic, the spiritual world right here, present all around us in this amazing sacred moment of childbirth. I loved it. Well, what a gift to get to have that be your job. Yeah, and then that launched me into curiosity about how to raise children in a way that wouldn't shut down their imagination or leave them free to become who they are. And that that took me into the Waldorf teacher training and the Waldorf education. And But I had enough kids of my own that I never, I never actually taught. I worked with the inner children of my clients in the therapy work. I was just going to say, I would have loved to have been able to go. You would have been the most precious, loving Waldorf teacher. But what I'm also hearing is this was all before Hoffman and negative love syndrome, right? We talk about that concept over and over. It's the, the lens through which we do the work. And it sounds like you were already aware of that well before the concept was even introduced to you. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't have had a name for it. 
You know, it's funny. I, I actually, in the psychosynthesis, we worked very much with parts, much like they do in internal family systems. And you would see the shamed child, or you would see the angry child, or you would see the critical mother, or the inauthentic, please love me, all these different sub-personalities that then during the process we named as patterns. And even the awareness of the spiritual self in psychosynthesis, it was simply called the higher self, I believe. It was the anger. I was just so angry. I was so angry with the way that I had been treated and so angry with my mother. And I was so afraid to express it or admit it. So I I do think that was the piece that was really missing for me. But again, it, it was the flow the flow, how one thing followed another, and all weaving through the process, these beautiful visualizations that would take me into a deep connection with my own spirituality. And, you know, I didn't really have a a religious connection. I had broken with the religion of my childhood when I was 11, actually, (laughs) when I was told that there were people in the world who were going to go to hell because they'd never I don't know, maybe we shouldn't go there. <laughs> it just broke my heart. You know, I have cousins who are missionaries, and it just broke my heart that they believed that if they didn't convert people, that they would be doomed. It felt so unfair and so unjust. And I had a big sobbing experience with my Sunday school teacher, and she she couldn't help me, and I just stomped out, and that was that. <laughs> At 11, yeah. That is pretty profound and powerful that at 11, you saw something that felt so wrong to your inner world that you said, no, no more. Really wrong. Really, really wrong. I just could not justify it at all. It it just didn't make any sense to me. But then, you know, as a young woman coming out of the 60s and the university and all of that. And and I became involved then with self-realization fellowship and, you know, the, the whole influx of the Eastern religions and so on. And like so many people, I got molested by my guru, <laughs> which sent me out of that and on a spiritual odyssey, which has continued throughout my life of, of um, just being fascinated by all the iterations of spirituality and how it's conceived and the paths and and the ways and means and all the different doors that that I think all open to the same place. Yeah. And even today it seems that everything that comes out is kind of redressing what's always been so in, in different words and different metaphors and different clothing. And so it doesn't really matter whatever path um, harmonizes or or speaks to people. That's the right one. That's the right one for them. Well, and take me back to, I'm still on this, an 11-year-old standing her ground. Would you say that was one of the defining moments of you starting out on this quest? I mean, you spent your entire life and still to this day, wildly dedicating to your own healing, but also to the healing of others. And so it sounds like, was that sort of the beginning of it? Or did it happen before that? Where did this fire get started? Well, that was the beginning of it in the sense that I was a really religious little girl. (laughs) 
and I used to embarrass my father because he was raised by evangelicals and he had a, a strong anti-religion streak in him. And I would embarrass him because I was so religious. And it threw me out of that. And I went full full steam into my teenage years as a very wounded, you know, the mother-daughter relationship was extremely wounding to me. It sent me into my high school years as a an avowed atheist that only cared really about boyfriends and, and shoes and <laughs> parties and all of that, you know. So, a typical hormonal teenager. And it wasn't really until I got to the University of Michigan in, in the 60s and all of the, the revolution that was going on on every level, consciousness and sexual and educational and political and social and encountered psychedelics, of course, that they were still legal when I was there. And, and this whole world opened up to me and um, reawakened my love for the outer reaches of consciousness, right? And I've been exploring that ever since in many, many different ways. Very long time with Buddhism. I love Buddhism. I love Buddhist psychology. I love people like Jack Cornfield and Tara Brock. And yeah, there's there's just so much out there. It's so rich. I just have to ask you, because it all of these years, I mean, so not even just the 24 years of, of being a Hoffman teacher, but the decades before that, right? Being in practice and dealing with other humans, what have you learned about humans or about suffering, about healing over all these years? That's a really deep question. Hmm. Well, I know what I have learned is that every single human being, let me put it this way, working at the process what I really loved about the process was that, as a teacher, was that every single person that came through that door, whatever they came in with, I can remember sometimes I think, oh my gosh, am I really going to be able to spend the week with this person, right? By the end of the week, and well before the end of the week, I could see that beautiful spark of spirit, their authentic self in them. And how truly beautiful it was. And by the end of the week, I used to say to my students, my gosh, I've fallen in love with, with eight more people this week. <laughs> I just would fall in love over and over and over again. And I went to the Congo for five weeks and worked with some women in the Congo, 90 women in, at a place called City of Joy, uh, who had been in the conflicts around Lake Kivu. And all of them had been raped and some dismembered. I mean, terrible trauma, terrible. And I was so moved, so moved by the resilience and the spirit that was still intact in these women. And I've worked in prisons too. I, I worked with alternatives to violence for a while. And, and just reliably again and again and again and again, when you really make a safe space for someone and you really listen to them, everybody wants to be seen and heard. And when you start seeing and hearing them, it might be very raw, but if you, if you stay with them and you really look and you really listen, eventually this beauty emerges. I want to tell a really quick little story about the Congo. I had no idea what I was going to do with these women. No idea. And nobody would tell me what they wanted. 
They said, just come and do something. And it's like, okay, I've never been to the Congo before. I don't, you know, so, so (laughs) really a long way from home and nobody spoke English. They spoke Swahili and French and I don't speak either. (laughs) Unfortunately, I had a translator, which was an amazing experience because you have to really craft what you say. There's not room to just blather on and on, which I, I kind of have a gift for doing. And so you really listen deeply. So I was working with the the women one day and trying to think what to do, what to do, what to do. And I pulled this little game out from my prison work. It's called Jump in the Circle. In fact, for a while, we played it at, at Hoffman. Jump in the circle if you're wearing black. Jump in the circle if you have a sister, right? Like that. And gradually you kind of up the intimacy of it, right? Jump into the circle if you've ever felt worthless. Jump into the circle if you've, get ready for this one, ever seen a family member murdered, right? So gradually, 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 all of these women, all of these 90 women, there was such a stigma around rape that they didn't know that they had all been raped. They hadn't shared that yet. And they'd been there for four weeks already. And they had been expelled from their villages because of the stigma of rape. That was terribly heartbreaking to them, by the way, of course. Maybe worse than than the trauma itself. So finally, I get to the point where I say, oh, and by the way, my translator, who was a man, he had to jump in too, and so did I. So to create safety, so nobody was feeling like, you know, there's an expert here on the outside who's judging us, right? So finally, I said, jump in the circle if you've been raped. And very hesitantly looking around, they jumped in, they all jumped in. And what happened then was so beautiful, so beautiful. They all started to cry. They all started holding and hugging each other, rocking each other, singing to each other. The outpouring of compassion was just gorgeous. It was heart-stopping. And I just stood there and I wept and watched these women form a community of love and compassion with each other. It was just amazing. From that, the healing began and the power, their empowerment began. They're kind of a you know, a grassroots movement for women's empowerment in a place that really doesn't treat women very well. And it was just, wow, the power of compassion is like nothing else. It is the mother load <laughs> of healing energy on this planet is compassion. No question about it. It was something else. Thank you for sharing that story. It brought goosebumps and tears and, and everything to me. And I you know, you started that by by saying just this ability to be seen and heard, right? And then that rolls into this beautiful connection of compassion. And I'm curious, what advice do you have for people to see and hear themselves, right? This this self compassion of of giving giving that to ourselves. What advice do you have? Well. I think, first of all, recognizing that that voice inside that's so unkind, that's so self-monitoring and critical, to recognize it as something that's learned. 
If you can see it, you're not it, right? You are the field of awareness and it is the content of your awareness. So to bring your mindfulness to that, to notice it, not to shame it or scold it or say, oh, I'm so messed up that I have that negative voice going on all the time, that critical voice going on. See it for what it is. It was developed as a way to keep us safe. You know, like if I criticize myself for being this way or that way, then maybe I can check it before it leaks out and I get in trouble right? So this is just a very old, early voice that we learned and we've been practicing for decades to keep ourselves safe by not showing up, by staying small. Sometimes staying small is acting big. It isn't necessarily shrinking. You know, sometimes it's covered with bluster or whatever. But to begin to see that voice for what it is and not shame it or Make yourself wrong about it, but recognize it just as what it is and have some compassion for all that we had to become in order to secure the connection and belonging we needed to survive and hopefully thrive. And that it's just outdated now. It doesn't make us bad. It's, it's just part of being human. And we have survived and we have thrived, and we have connection and belonging. It starts with ourself, to belong to ourself. And yeah, so to have some compassion for all that we had to learn, instead of shame and blame. I maybe could have said that more clearly, but <laughs> yeah, see, there's my dark side. You didn't say that right. <laughs> you could have done that better. Everybody's judging you. <laughs> <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's just so strongly in our neural pathways, right? And it's just what is. I feel so incredibly honored to be able to have had this conversation with you. And I just, through hearing all of your stories, I just, it strikes me the number of hearts, whether it was guiding people into this world, whether it was guiding them through their journey. It's incredible the amount of love that you one person has brought to this world. And I just, I really want to thank you for your honesty and your vulnerability and your love. Thank you, Liz. And that, that's true of everyone who goes out, you know, you take your love out and it ripples. You love this person who then is able to love that person who's able to love those people. And it just, it just ripples out and out and out and out. I want to say one thing in, in closing. I think we're probably out of time, but there was a moment in my teacher training that, that I thought I was going to quit. It was just, you know, it was like, oh my gosh, I can't take this anymore. I can't take this anymore. <laughs> and I, I sat down in the hotel after the process before getting on my flight. I spent the night in a hotel and I was sitting there and I, I thought, if I don't get a sign right now from my spiritual guide or my spiritual self, I'm quitting. <laughs> and then I got mad because I got, quote unquote, distracted by the sea of faces of students that I had encountered in my teacher training and their faces just blossoming into themselves, into joy and love. And, and I got so mad. I thought, I can't even focus here because all of this distraction. And I went off to dinner and I was sitting at dinner and all of a sudden I went, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, 
that's the sign. It's not about me. It's about the people that are coming to the process that need to experience what I experienced and go back out into their lives and love. You know, that was it. That was it. I got over my doubt about being a teacher. Well, I think that is a beautiful place to end because it's it's just, it's who you are. You are love. And I um, I just so appreciate it. Thank you, Liz. And for anybody who, who thinks that that is uh, like 24-7, please understand, we weave in and out and in and out of patterns and presence. And that's not a bad thing at all. Just human, all of us. Thank you. Beautiful questions. Thanks, Linda. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.